Good morning. So good to see you and worship with you. The Lord is worthy of our praise. And uh, I think one of the things that most moves me is the very thing that we're going to be talking about today. It was the thing that truly brought me to Christ uh, a long time ago, 1982, was the love of God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's where Paul's uh, text goes. You can turn to Ephesians 5. Uh, in many ways, we're getting to the bullseye of Paul's aim of the whole second half of Ephesians. Um, in many ways, this is, it's been a recurring theme. It's popped up here and there, but we're really honing in on uh, this concept of love. Now, we use the word generally. I did a little bit of research this week, and it was sort of like an endless black hole that I could never get out of. But um, we use that word love just to express our you know, positive thoughts and feelings about just about anything, right? Um, I love ice cream. I love mountains. I love cycling and riding. I love my wife. I love my children and my grandchildren. I love this church, and I love the Bible, and I love Jesus. Isn't it amazing that I can use that one word for all of those things? And obviously, I don't mean that I feel and think the same way about all of those things just because I use that same word, right? Ice cream and Jesus, you know, there's a difference there. So we use that term very, very flexibly. Love is a complex topic. It's, it's something that we have to think very, very carefully about, and especially because it is at the very center of everything that we know about Christianity. It is at the very heart of it. It's also at the center of our calling as Christ followers. It's always been at the center of God's calling for his people. Today's passage contains that calling, and then it also contains some very explicit descriptions of what love is and what love isn't. So we're going to, to dive into this and uh, hopefully better understand what it is for us to love well. Now, when it comes to love, and this is one of the most reassuring things for me in this whole uh, passage, God always goes first. Isn't that encouraging? He always takes the lead, and that's where Paul begins in verse 1. He tells us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, he's flowing right out of the idea at the end of chapter 4, verse 32, where he said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He went first. He loved you. He forgave you. He tells us we are to imitate that. We're to imitate God, and, and he just told us who God is and what he is like. So we're to imitate or mimic the kindness of God, 
the tenderheartedness of God toward us, the forgiveness that he so graciously granted us in Christ, we're to mimic that. Now, what direction would we do that? Horizontally, right? Certainly, we're grateful to God. We praise him and worship him. We were just singing songs about how wonderful he is. But if we're to mimic him, the object of that would be those people that are around us. That's the place that we are to imitate him. He gives us the manner in which we're to do that. He says, as beloved children. Once again, this idea of God going first. It's like you have been so loved, so perfectly loved, that that would, in a sense, prepare you, enable you, direct you to love others similarly. Uh, I just I learned something this week about that particular phrase as beloved children. It's not just the idea that you've been loved as a child of God, but you've been loved as if you were the only child of God. Imagine that. Imagine you're the only person on all the earth. And he loved you as fully as God can love you. That is how he loves you. Though there are billions and billions of other people running around the planet. He has loved you as an only child. And Paul expects that such lavish love will flood out of us into and onto the lives of the people around us. Uh, This train of thought is also expressed by the Apostle John in 1 John 4. He says, God is love. So it's not just something that he does, it's something that he is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. God went first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us. When it comes to love, God always goes first. And then he expects us to follow his lead. And it's interesting that Paul didn't just tell us to imitate God. This was something that he took very seriously himself. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He said a similar thing in Philippians 3. It's actually a beautiful picture, just of basic discipleship. We, We think so often about all the curriculum that we have to deliver to people in the context of discipleship. It begins with imitation. It's me knowing God as intimately as I can and following hard after him and then saying to another, I don't do it perfectly, but follow my lead as I'm following his lead. And then to close the loop, it's like find somebody else and have them follow you. I wonder if we understand, know, and embrace the love of God so fully that we could say to another, follow me, imitate my life as I am imitating his. It's a challenging, challenging thought. 
based on all that we know of Paul, um, this imitation wasn't sporadic, but it was an all-consuming aim. And so I would say it this way, love is a way of life. It isn't just something that I do when, you know, I feel moved. He, verse 2, he starts with walk in love. Now, we've heard this term walk several times now, right, throughout the book. It's this idea of, I think I called it a behavioral gait, right? Thinking about your stride and your arm swing, your foot strike, your pace. That's all, those are things that we use to describe our physical gait. This is a behavioral gait. It's how we live, thought, word, and deed. And he's saying all of that ought to be defined by love. Our entire way of life ought to be governed by the way of love. So we don't compartmentalize it. It's not based on circumstance. I mean, even in the hardest moments of life, we're called to love. Paul is going to qualify what he means by love, but we know exactly what is in his mind when he says that word from 1 Corinthians 13. I want to go there for just a moment. We can't linger here long. This might be something great for you to return to this week. Um, We've heard it a thousand times, haven't we? Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. I thought it might be helpful to think about the flip side, the dark side, what love is not. And I try to think of a word. I don't know if this is the best one, but what, what is the opposite of love? We might say hate, but then, you know, lots of you might go, well, I mean, I don't hate people. Okay, how about disdain? Maybe that works. It's basically being disinterested in the welfare of someone else, regardless of who they might be. And if we go down this list, you know, Love does not envy, so disdain is envious. It's looking at what everybody else has and wishing that you had it instead. Love does not insist on its own way. Disdain is demanding. It always wants its own way. Drop down to the bottom. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things. That's inspirational. Disdain, on the other hand, deflects all things, doubts all things, despairs of all things, and succumbs to all things. Using Paul's previous language in his book of Ephesians, we are to put on love and put off disdain as a way of life, in all of life. Undergirding those expressions of love is a bedrock of sacrifice. And once again, I I talked about how all of the ways that we use love and how often do we have sacrifice in mind when we're talking about loving something. You know, ice cream. Maybe I'm sacrificing my health, I don't know. Love is sacrificial. That may be the very best distinctive of what love truly is. Sacrificial. 
Paul points to Christ as our model and our standard of what love is, and look at how he describes it. He says, walk in love, let love be a way of life, and then here's your model or your standard, as Christ loved us and did what? Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the good news of the gospel. It's good news for us. It cost Jesus his life. He loved us. He gave himself up for us. And then all that Jesus did on our behalf was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. F.B. Meyer describes the cross this way. An awful scene of horror. But in love so measureless, so reckless of cost for those who were naturally unworthy of it, there was an action that filled heaven with fragrance. Man, that's beautiful. I did think that this passage is a good one to correct the false idea that Christ's death on the cross the primary purpose of it was just to give us an example of what love is. That is true, obviously. Paul is pointing to the example of the cross. But make no mistake, the cross exists for the forgiveness of sin. He died in our place. The wages of sin is death. So if Jesus doesn't die, we don't live. It's you and I that deserve to be on the cross. But he went in our place. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. He is the propitiation for our sin. He appeases or satisfies the wrath of God. That is what the cross is all about. And it so happens to give us the most beautiful picture in all of history of what love is really about. Jesus paid our ransom with his life. And there is no greater love, is there, than one lay down his life for his friends. Now, having said that, the sacrificial death of Christ points us to a life of love that is in stark contrast with the ways of the world. Paul goes on to clarify the certain behaviors that are contrary to the life of love, and that he picks up in uh, verse 3. We could start by saying it positively, love is virtuous. Love is virtuous. But Paul goes on to clarify what love is not. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Um, To be honest with you, this feels a little bit repetitive. If you've been here the last few weeks, Paul's been going here. Uh, on a few different occasions, and he's gonna, there's going to be some more repetition coming up. And it's tempting for me and Jeff to sort of go, well, you guys got that, so let's move on. Let's, let's get on to some new, fresh stuff. But then I thought, 
Well, Paul probably repeated himself for a reason. Maybe we need to hear it. Maybe this stuff is so crucial for a life of love that he says it multiple times in multiple ways so that we might consider it over and over and over again. So we're going to dive in. These vices represent the self-indulgent way of the world. Notice the contrast. Love is sacrificial. These vices are self-indulgent. They're all about us. Sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are attempts to seize the good gifts of God and exploit them for our own pleasure and gain. So we're misusing all of the goodness that God has granted to us as an expression of his love. Let's work through them. The gift of sexual intimacy is explicitly reserved for one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, period. Anything sexual outside of that good context is in violation of the good gift, period. There's no exceptions. There's no clause in here that just says, well, I mean, if it's this kind of circumstance, or I mean, if you really care and love this person, or like those don't matter. One way that this gift is to be enjoyed, impurity. That is the result of a disregard for biblical moral standards. God decided how life was to be lived. We don't get to do that. He, he didn't even invite our opinion. He just said, listen, I made you. And I know how you will flourish, not only as an individual, but in community with other people. So I'm going to tell you how to live. Now, our independent spirit, right? We don't like that. Nobody tells me how to live. I know what I like. The Lord says, what you like will lead you to death. Paul includes the word all there, so uh, some commentators will take impurity and apply it exclusively with regards to sexuality, but he says all impurity, and that represents any departure from or corruption of what God calls holy, righteous, and good. You know, we ought to be experts on that. What is holy and righteous and good, and please hear me. This is not an expression of piety on my part. I have to fight the good fight in my mind just like you do. I've got thoughts that run through my head that make me nauseous. But you got to fight. And you got to renew your mind and replace those thoughts with a clear biblical understanding of what is holy and righteous and good. And then finally, covetousness or greed. That's rooted in discontentment. It's basically saying, I'm not satisfied with what God has given to me. I want more. And as I look around, I see all these other people that have more than me, and I want what they have. And then it never stops with a thought. 
it always goes into action. Even if it's just the way I treat those people who have more than me. Covetousness is a deadly sin fueled by entitlement. The idea of entitlement. This worldly walk is improper for saints. And saints aren't holy people in the sense of like we don't all walk around and we're perfect and everybody else isn't. A saint is a person who has been redeemed. A beloved child using Paul's terms. That's what a saint is. And those behaviors, those vices, they're improper. He goes so far as to say those shouldn't even be named among us. I know, I know that churches have been way over the top from a legalistic perspective. But their problem is not striving after holiness. It's that they're doing so in order to get something from God. That if they're a Christian, they already have. That's the problem of legalism. We are are supposed to go after holiness with everything in us. We are to be as holy as a person can possibly be, but not so that we will be accepted by God. It's because we have been accepted by God, loved lavishly by him. Now, having said that, isn't it tempting to compromise and justify behaviors of all kinds that God has prohibited? I... I, uh, I find it helpful to ask myself, I don't do this all the time, I wish I did, but I find it helpful in any given situation to ask myself, am I more interested in my happiness or in God's holiness? God's holiness, from his perspective, trumps happiness every time. And if you want to think of it this way, What if I were never happy in this life, but I spend all of eternity in the holy presence of God thereafter? That seems like a pretty good trade. I'll take that all day long. We're told what matters most to God, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what he expects of his children. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, and we love that, man. Freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, sacrificial love. Deny yourself, set aside your freedom, and serve one another. That's what matters to God. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's keep rolling. Verse 4. He keeps going, and he's again repeating verses 25, 29, and 31 from chapter 4. Here he uh, addresses the sinful speech patterns of the world. Let there be no filthiness, 
nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So what's he talking about here? Filthiness, obscenity, vulgarity, shameless speech. And it's just interesting that in Christian circles, we give each other a pass because it's kind of like a wink, you know. We throw something out, some obscene word, and it's sort of like, oh, it's okay. (laughs) More Christians. As if somehow being a Christian kind of puts a blanket over what we say or don't say. Foolish talk. These are words without either sense or profit. Poorly timed and insensitive. It's really just talking without any regard for what's going on around you. Crude joking. Coarse jesting. It usually involves humor at somebody else's expense. That's what he's talking about. All of these uses of words, of our mouth, they are self-indulgent expressions. Do you see that? See, love demands that even when I say a word, I don't say it for my benefit. I say it for yours. I want to encourage you, build you up. Perhaps it's corrective or instructive. Maybe it's just encouraging. But whatever I say, it ought to bear fruit in your life. With these vices of speech, the speaker is most interested in the noise that they are making than they are in building up those who are within earshot. The correction here, or the alternative, is thanksgiving. What a beautiful, what a beautiful replacement for filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Thanksgiving rightly acknowledges what is truly good. Like when you give thanks for something, you're recognizing that that is truly good. And you're recognizing the source of all that's good because you're directing that thanksgiving somewhere, right? And if you're directing it to God, then you are recognizing the infinitely good nature of the giver. That is pleasing to God and good for our souls. So, love is a way of life. Love is sacrificial. Love is virtuous. And finally, love leads us to heaven. And I know that that phrase will make absolutely no sense when I read this verse. But hang with me. We'll get there. Okay? Love leads us to heaven. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, love leads us to heaven. This is an emphatic and sobering warning to professing believers. Remember, he's not writing to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians. This warning is not unlike a couple of others I, I thought would be worth reading. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to clarify, he's not saying that if you ever do those things, like one time, you're out. He's really pointing at a way of life, which we said love is a way of life. But if you're practicing these things, right, you're not practicing love. You're, you're doing something else. And if you're doing that as a way of life, then that ought to be a red flag for you. You ought to be saying, how is it that I profess that I love God because he loved me? I am a follower of his. I'm a beloved child. If I'm professing that and yet I'm living out all of these other things, it's just contradictory. And at the very least, I need to ask for help. At the very worst, I might not have the life that I profess to have. Inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God here, that's a reference to eternal life. And I'm not trying to sow any seeds of doubt at all in you about your salvation. Neither is Paul. He's just saying, and this has always been true, that if you have been given life in Christ, it will bear fruit in how you live. That's just the way it works. You don't live well in order to get life. You live well because you have life. And if you're not living well, then you probably need to check the roots. Find out what's going on there. Here was another reference, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They can't, not because of their behavior, but because that their faith is still in themselves instead of in Christ. And their behavior displays that for everyone to see. Now, let's review the gospel, okay? Let's keep that in mind when we're coming to a verse like this. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, right? Got to get that clear. So salvation is not a product of our performance. I just want to be absolutely clear. But Paul is emphasizing the truth that genuine salvation is evidenced by a changed life. That is a progressive drop in sinful behavior, not perfection, just a, a drop, a progressive drop over time. And a progressive rise in righteous behavior, ongoing conformity to Christ-likeness. 
1 John 3, 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Notice he doesn't say they never sin. He says they don't make a practice of it. For, here's why, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Seems pretty straightforward. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. There it is. The tree bears its fruit. So the caution here, I think, is against having a cavalier or an indifferent or complacent attitude towards sin. It's just you and I striving, as I said earlier, after holiness. Why? Because our God is holy, and that's what he calls us to. Here's a prayer. There's many in the Psalms that I think we could turn to, but um, I, and this is just something that I feel regularly because you know, when I was a brand new Christian, <laughs> there's no telling all the stuff that I did that I thought was totally fine until somebody came along and said, hey, by the way, can we talk about something? I, now in this season of my life, there, it's rare that I'm just doing something. I'm like, really? Seriously? That was a sin? Oftentimes, I'm making choices, knowing all of it, and yet doing it anyway. So my greatest prayer is right here. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. I know the grace of God. He has been so kind to me. I know that I am forgiven. I know that, that no sin of mine can surpass the grace of God in my life. But presumptuous sin never leads me to life. It leads to consequences and loss, pain, difficulty. David prays, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So as Christ followers... Whatever it is we know about the righteousness of God, we can ask him, Lord, keep me from acting presumptuously on your kindness toward me. It's actually the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Let me focus in on that and then let me grow as a result. So wrap it all up together. God first loved us. That's where we started. We love God and others because we are loved and for no other reason. A life of love is a walk of obedience. And the walk of obedience follows the path and person of love that leads us to heaven. Love leads us to heaven. I'm going to give you an opportunity to interact with these statements and this reality of love in your life? 
how might you need to respond to that? You know what? Today may have just been the, the sweetest of reassurance for you, just to be reminded again that God loves you, just in spite of you, loves you more than you can even imagine. But his love for you calls you to a way of life that is and will always be different than the life you would just choose all by yourself. So what is that life that he's calling you to? What adjustments might he want you to make so that you are more aligned with the love of God maybe than you ever have been in your life? Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to show you where it is that you can better align your life with the way of love. Good morning, Lord. We come to you this morning, uh, strong words, great exhortation, great clarification. So we come to you this morning and we're grateful for that clarification. Clarification that we come to Christ, as Monty said, by faith alone and your sacrifice on the cross alone. And out of that, you place your spirit in us. You begin to change the way we think. You begin to change the way we live. Paul outlines these ways that are antithetical to you and your great love for us. I'm struck, was struck, and am struck by the words in the text, let there be thanksgiving. Lord, some of my and some of our worst moments are when we lose the ability to see the goodness and kindness of yourself. We fail to live with hearts of thanksgiving, hearts of gratitude. and So we go our own way, we think our own thoughts, we speak our own words, we 
live our own lives without thinking of your great sacrifice for us. And so, Lord, help us, not only today, but as we move forward in the week, help us to have hearts full of thanksgiving, full of gratitude to you, and live that out daily with each other. We love you, and everyone here said, 